The Pace Line is supported by LAL Cycling. Crafted in California, the LAL brand combines the latest technology with cycling tradition to deliver an experience that is authentically California. View their retail gear and custom program at LALcycling.com. That's E-L-I-E-L cycling.com. And the Pace Line is supported by Health IQ. You ride your bike, you stay in shape, you deserve lower life insurance rates. Head over to their website, healthiq.com forward slash paceline, and find out how much your riding can save you on premiums. Now on to the show. Hello, Paceliners. Michael Houghton here, a.k.a. Hottie. I'm in Beaver, Utah. Beaver, Utah. Beaver, Utah. And I have found Fatty, which is always awesome. It's always better to see you in person than over Skype or whatever it is we talk about. But we're in Beaver for Crusher and the Tusher. What the hell are we in for? We are in for 70 miles, a.k.a. a full day of heat, steep, pain, dust, and honestly, a lot of fun. How many times for you? I think this is my fourth time. Yeah, fourth. Fourth or fifth. Okay. You lose count. (laughs) You do. When when it's that much pain, you do lose count. Okay. 10,000 feet of climbing, 70 miles. I think we're doing more climbing today than today's stage in the Tour de France. It's all about the climbs. Two really, really big climbs. Okay. All right, folks. We'll see you on the other side of this thing. Enjoy the show. Paceline episode 75. We'll be much less lucid on the other side. (laughs) Much. Paceline, the podcast on two wheels, show number 75. We are three quarters of the way till 100 when we give away terrible bicycles. I know, I think we were just kidding when we said we were going to do that, guys, but I kind of think we should. It doesn't matter, though. We're not going to talk about that. We're just going to talk for a solid hour about Crusher in the Tusher, or at least that's what I want to do. How about you, Hottie? Um... Can we just... Can we just tell stories for an hour about about? I bet people would love to hear that. I, I could tell a story for an hour about one of the two massive climbs I did there. I think covering that whole race and the pain and the suffering you go through on that thing could take days to to mull over. It, it is, and that that frankly is what I love about the big big rides, uh, the Crusher and the Tusher, Leadville One Hundred. The um, little ride that you did, I can't even remember what it's called, uh, uh, Patrick. It's, I don't know, dirty something or another. It, <laughs> I think we talked about it at some point. The Pace Line, of course, is the podcast of Red Kite Prayer, where you can get the stories, the questions, the comments, pictures, all of that, and heck, some pretty dang good writing as well. You can find the Pace Line at iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Podbean. I like saying Podbean. I, I don't know if anyone actually uses it, but mm. it's the TuneIn Radio. Can you guys tell I'm it's on TuneIn Radio. TuneIn. Yeah. Wow, that's really obscure. Something. It's obscure is what it is. <laughs> it's really obscure. <laughs> oh, but we are. Goodness, We're obscure. Guys. <laughs> so we fit right in. Mm-hmm. I, I really do. Uh, love the big rides and i really do want to talk about the crusher in the tusher uh hottie both you and i were there the night before the race 
We ate at the Crazy Cow Cafe, mm-hmm. a real place in Beaver, Utah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> one of like three possible restaurants one can eat at. The Crazy um, Cow in Beaver. The Crazy Cow in Beaver, Utah. That's okay. right. All right. Yep. Um, what are what are the things you remember? What are your standout memories from that day? One, climb, 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 keep climbing, keep climbing. <laughs> it was it was a climbing event. <laughs> it it is. It's a climber's race, no question about mm-hmm. it. Um, it, it a good way to sort of. Get, help our listeners wrap their minds around it. I think you do, you know, you do ten miles on the pavement. You make a right turn, and then you climb four thousand feet. Right? I mean, I think that's the amount of climbing in the first climb that you do. Uh, yeah, that's pretty close. You, you- I'm I, I'm probably exaggerating, but it's it feels like it's about that much until mile twenty one. So for the next eleven miles, you were just going straight up, and I. My, I consider myself a pretty fair climber, but I could tell this was a serious climber's race when I got caught and passed by this like 92 pound local racer girl who is just climb-tastic, has never been on a uh, cyclocross bike or an adventure bike before in her life, but she can climb. And so, for, you know, for at least that part of the race, she caught and passed me. And then the next time we did the big climb, she caught and passed me again, um, in spite of the, this bike being brand new to her. So, I mean, it's a climber's race, no question about mm-hmm. it. How about the heat? It, that's not a, your big takeaway from that race? Not at all. I mean, when we went into U- U- southern Utah there, there was a lot of talk about heat waves, and it was hot mm-hmm. in Los Angeles as well, where I where we left uh, Thursday. Um, there was a lot of discussion of heat. But as soon as you got above um, 6,500, 7,000 feet, I thought it got very, very nice. And in the trees, it was absolutely mm-hmm. beautiful. Yes, you go yes. over the top of the Tushers, and then you descend into the valley, into a town called Junction, and then you end up in Circleville, um, and you're in a desert area, no doubt. But you spend about an hour down there, and, and it was sufferable, if that's a word. Um, so <laughs> I, I never thought the, it, the heat was a factor. You certainly had to play for it. You had to understand it. You had to manage it, and it caught a, a, a many people off guard. In fact, some people, I think, underestimated how much fluid they would need. But once you got above 7,000 feet, I felt like, Again, this, it was more about the climbing than it was about the temperature. It was a hot day, and, and and eventually, Fatty, we left probably just below 100 degree heat and arrived at the finish line at what was high 40s and raining. So you got everything there, which was it, which was something that the Tusher uh, often will do. The card that will often play to you is you not only have to be ready for its heat, but it could be cold and wet too. Yeah, my uh, my GPS thermometer shows a high of one fifteen and a low of thirty nine mm-hmm. during that during that race. Mm-hmm. Um, I was lucky enough to have finished before it started, but I know that my wife endured some hail in addition to this blasting hot heat. Um, I'm glad that you were able to do well with it on that second big climb uh, where you're climbing back up the giant descent that you had done an hour before thanks to the heat 
I dealt with some serious, serious cramps. And there wasn't a thing I could do about them because I had done something that was both kind and super stupid and cocky. Um, I, it, it, before I hit that second big climb, I'd done something smart and taken a bunch of electrolyte tabs um, just to kind of prep for the likelihood that I would otherwise get cramps. I know how my body works. And it was working well, and I was passing a ton of people, feeling really good about myself. came across a guy who had cramps. And I reach into my jersey pocket and say, here, I've got some electrolyte capsules. Take them. And he was grateful, and I continued on. And I came across a second person, a good friend of mine, actually. He was also cramping. And I reach into my other jersey pocket. (laughs) I have three jersey pocket's. Mm -hmm. And I pull out a hot shot because uh, those have worked for me in the past. And I say, this is a gamble. Some people re- these really work for. Some people uh, will start retching. But uh, try this hot shot and it might fix your cramp. And he's like, okay. And I continue on. And then I got cramps <laughs> about two thirds of the way up, uh, three quarters of the way up. And I'd given away all my stuff. Um I kind of feel like that was a dumb move. Um, it's nice to help people, but on, in a race where cramping is likely uh, and even probable, considering my own history with this race, should I have given away everything? No, I sh- probably should have been a little more selfish and figured, hey, if you don't know about the possibility of cramps on this particular climb, then you're probably going to have to suffer through some cramps this time. I don't know. Was I smart or was I smart? Was I dumb? Was I nice? Was I cocky? Was I all four? I don't know. You were self-destructively kind. <laughs> Story of my life. Can karma. we go back to the temperature for a second? Sure. Let's do I, w- I want to note that what you said, a low of 39, a high of 115, that's a 76 degree range. It is, I swear to God, the largest range I've ever heard in a single race in my life. I'm pretty sure that that 115 is probably inaccurate. Mm-hmm. Like most uh, bike computers, mine is black. The handlebars and stem near them, black. You know, so there's some extra heat. I mean, it seems like the the high I get on my read from my bike computer is always kind of high. Um, that said, 100 to 105, I think, is probably pretty close. I never felt like I was riding in 115. How about you, Hadi? Uh, I never did either. Like I said, I was guesstimating uh, just below 100 or maybe about 100 mm-hmm. degrees down there coming out of Circleville when you hit the dirt section there, that deserty dirt section, as you yeah, head back towards yeah. the Colder Crush. You know, I was estimating this, is, this feels like just about 100 degrees and... Again, it wasn't the steep part of the climb. You weren't on the cold to crush, thank God. So you could suffer mm-hmm. through it. It did take a lot out of the bodies that were that were crossing that area. We we had friends. We had a friend who certainly that that section probably cost him a finish because of the amount of energy it took and the amount of sweat he drained from his body. He was probably unable to to even try the cold to crush. So that was a big factor. And then at the top. Uh, suddenly we had this mad temperature swing plus rain. Um, and that meant for some shivering bodies at the finish line, Patrick, to help you understand these climbs, you've done plenty of climbs in the French Alps. 
um, I would say that the Col de Crush, which is the second climb, is similar in length at least, like doing the Telegraph and the Galibier, which I'm sure you've done. That's about how long we're talking about. Both uh, of them? Both, yeah. Both. That's you're yeah. talking. You're talking four hours of climbing, four hours plus. Yeah, it it can it can take you that long. Yep, that's what it felt Good. like in the legs, Grief. at least. Well, but wait, yeah. if, if if but there were people who were riding this whole thing in five ish hours. Mm-hmm. The racers. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I mean, yeah, it's the race itself is only sixty nine miles. And I'm talking right? about. I should I should clarify. I'm talking about from the bottom, from junction itself, which is the bottom, which is about yeah. the halfway point of the race. So about mile 35, mm-hmm. 40 in there. So then from there, you turn around and you do, all you do is climb all the way to the finish. Yeah. All the way to the finish. It's a long, and the first climb itself is an HC climb. And that's a beyond category climb itself. It'll take you two hours. So it is, it, you have to dig. You really have to dig there. Yeah. I mean, six, wow. you do the ride and I, it took me six hours and 40, 50 minutes to do the whole thing for 70 miles. That's it's climbing. You just climb. That's what you do. <laughs> it is a climber's delight. And I, I, is there I such a do... thing really? Oh, you like the climber's delight. I, I, I got it. Patrick, you like to climb. I know you do. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 <laughs> and I do too. I try not um, to admit that. <laughs> and you know, Apart from cramps, I mean that's what I that's what I love doing most, and I <laughs> I will say that I I love uh, I, I have the Eagle drivetrain on my mountain bike. I was riding a mountain bike, unlike most people who were riding uh, uh, cross bikes. Mm-hmm. I'm just a little more comfortable doing standing climbing that way. And oh, to shift into that granny on with the Eagle, it is really nice. You can you can ride right through a cramp. It's a light gear, but you can do it. So yeah, it it was nice. I'd forgotten how nice it is to have a a true granny granny gear. I I too was on a mountain bike, rigid front fork. Um, mm-hmm. I, I was wishing for a a gravel bike though, with forties or a little better. Yeah, I the the descent just there just wasn't enough descending to to just and i had skinny tires i had fairly skinny i had 1.95s renegades uh specialized renegade mm-hmm. which they were super light knob and i was still kind of wishing for something with 40s or maybe 45s i saw some people on the salsa cutthroat uh which is actually more of a bikepacking bike or a, a off-road bi- bikepacking bike i thought that that looks like a proper machine or the warbird or um, you know any of those little more robust type gravel bikes seem like the right with the proper gearing. I think Patrick, this is a perfect place for a micro compact if you're into mm-hmm. that, um, or if you're going to run one by, you know you want to you want to take that front ring and and put something smaller than a forty on there if you're going to run a one by and you've got a ten forty two on the back. So it seemed like that type of you know you fa- you want to favor the low gearing because again there just isn't enough downhill or flats. <laughs> To justify any type of 50-12, for that matter. You just don't need any of that. You did, you need to be right. able to climb. That's all. Eldon, did you have a suspension fork? I did. I had the RS1 on my uh, on my Felt uh, 9 FRD. Ah, and okay. I was happy to have it. Um, I locked it out for, I would say, 90%. 
of the day and mm-hmm. uh, for the gravelly, very washboardy descent uh, coming down what is affectionately known as the cold crush. This, uh, I guess, about, about a four-mile washboardy dirt road. I really enjoyed having it. My wrists are messed up from several years of uh, single-speed rigid mountain biking, and they hurt uh, a lot sooner than they ever used to. And having suspension for me is the difference between enjoying the day and having a miserable day. So it was, for me, it wasn't any question at all. Um, let's talk a little bit about the finish line experience because that – and that's what probably I'm going to remember most. Um, about the time you come down off the dirt and into the final uh, about two or three miles of climbing, it's all on pavement. And for that's where I was when it started to rain. And it started to mist, and I was glad of it because the break from the heat was so welcome. And then it started to rain, and it never really bothered me because I was – Um, You know, it it, it was a nice cool down. And even when it was by the time I got to the finish line truly dumping, um, I was okay with it. Then you get off the bike and your body is so messed up. Um, And you start shivering right away. And they had those nice uh, sort of Iron Man style um, space blankets that, you know, the super shiny space blankets look like the the aluminum foil. The Apollo Lander. (laughs) They wrap you in aluminum foil. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, that that helped a lot. And then got it in the lodge and I just hung out there and waited um, for a, a little while, changed clothes, wandered back out when the rain eased up. And it was the best timing I could have ever made because about two minutes after I got to the finish line area, my wife rolls up and I was able to get good pictures of her crossing the finish line. And she, you know, she had been in the rain for a little while. She was freezing. She had been in the hail. She was, you know, she was just completely smoked. Mm-hmm. And so we went back and we sort of huddled in there. And, you know, about, what, 200 racers at a given time huddling in a ski lodge. It starts to smell really bad. <laughs> <laughs> it's, we do not smell pleasant as a group when when combined. And as a result... Uh, because we were huddled in there, neither of us found out that both of us had podiumed in our age group until afterward. <laughs> it was a, a little unfortunate um, because that is the first time I've ever podiumed at the Crusher and the Tusher. But I did fifth place in the 50 to 59 age group, which was the single largest age group uh, in the Crusher and the Tusher. More than 120 old guys uh, doing this race. I was number five so uh, with a time of 518. Wow. You must have done your best time as a late 40-year-old then, right? Your 515? That's right. My 515, I was, I think, I was 49 years old. That was in 2015. And I actually sent an email to Jonathan Vodders the following morning, which is while his racer was winning the Tour de France, I'm pretty sure the time overlap was pretty close. Um, but I didn't know. I was in Denny's and was feeling a little morose. I was like, I was targeting a 5.15. I want to be the fastest I've ever been. And I was three minutes slower than my best. And he replied, uh, oddly enough, within like five minutes saying, check the fastest finish time for the age group in the year you got your fastest time and, and compare. 
Um, and I did. And I'm actually, I was just seven minutes off the fastest time this year as opposed to 11 minutes off the fastest uh, time for my age group in 15. Uh-huh. Does that say a lot? I don't know. I mean, certainly, you know, cramps played into it. And I would say rain probably played into it. Maybe heat played into it. There were factors, but there's always factors, mm-hmm. right? It's hard to say. But um, it was kind of interesting, you know, interesting to find out and kind of cool to have uh, have Vodders take an interest in spite of the fact that he has uh, he has fish to fry right now. Yeah. Well, about, <laughs> has a little race of his own going on. About about an hour before you crossed the line, Robbie Squire came in at four thirteen thirty nine and won his oh, third so his third consecutive crusher in the Tusher. Todd Wells right behind him, fifteen seconds behind. So that's your one two for the pro men. Four thirteen thirty nine, seventy miles, ten thousand feet. And that's you're not you're not getting a lot of downhill help there. So and you're pretty much you're riding on your own. I mean, that's the event. It does not call for tactics or not much drafting. I mean, those two boys probably worked together for a while, but that is a lot of time Mm. to go out there and just roll on your own. Um, I do have I do have one Todd Wells and Crusher related uh, story to tell. It, It won't take long. I'll be quick on this one. But. A few weeks ago at the um, Camp of Champions for the Leadville 100, it's a, a you know a week-long thing where people can pay to go and pre-ride some of the course with past champions of the course and get tips and advice from them. Um, my stepson hit was attending that. Um, my stepdaughter was uh, basically uh, poaching it. Well, no, she, she was his plus one for the dinner the night uh, during the thing. And there was a guy sitting by her during this meal, um, and she, he happened to mention that he was going to be racing the Crusher and the Tusher. And she had done it the year before, um, during her first full year of mountain biking, and uh, proceeded to give him some really good advice about racing the Crusher and the Tusher and mountain biking in general. And then, you know, after they talked and he listened attentively and then, of course, they called up Todd Wells, who she'd just been giving advice to, uh, up to the podium to talk. So, yes, um, stepdaughter, uh, has, I think it's because she told him about the Crusher and the Tusher, which he had taken second in last year, too, I think, um, that he did so well this year. Uh, and about an hour before the hammer crossed the line, it was Janelle Holcomb, five hours 42 seconds. She was your win- uh, ladies' wow. winner, pro women's winner. Uh, then uh, she was followed by Melinda McCutcheon, eight minutes behind. So those are your pro men and women at the Crusher and the Tusher. Certainly, you know, a, a becoming a prestigious event. I think one that people want to notch in, the, in their belt, you know, for the for the folks who do this for a living. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's a, it's a true adventure. It is an, it's a good amount of time to be out there. And, of course, uh, Burke, who knows a thing or two about racing, really knows how to put on a race that racers really kind of can think about and wrap their arms around and obsess over. And you and I actually talked with him at the finish line uh, in a yurt full of dead flies. That's right. Burke Swindlehurst, (laughs) right? He's your race director, the uh, founder of this thing, a former uh, road racer himself who, who found this little race. Developed it, turned it into something, and it's it's really become one of the great adventures. And we talked to Burke uh, shortly after 
Fatty and I got done with the Crusher and the Tusher. We are at the finish line of the Crusher and the Tusher, 70 miles or 69. I mean, let's, let's, let's not exaggerate <laughs> the length of this thing, but it feels like darn near infinite. We are talking with Burke Swindlehurst, whose brainchild this is. And Burke, this has been quite a year for you. You are, uh, we, we're standing in a yurt to get out of the rain. <laughs> How are you feeling about this year's event? Um, you know, I'm pretty stressed out about the event right now. Just as the as the race director, you're always stressed out. You're worrying about things you have no control over, um, things like rain, things like lightning, and all those things came to fruition today. So we're kind of juggling that and dealing with some logistical issues, keeping people warm and getting them back to Beaver, that sort of thing. But uh, I think I'll see tomorrow morning. I think we all will. I mean, very tough event. Uh, fatty... I asked Fatty to help set me up for this event. I said, how does it compare to, like, say, for Leadville? I think, Fatty, you told me mile for mile it's harder than Leadville. It just doesn't have the length of, of Leadville, yeah. and I'd agree mm -hmm. with that. It's a very difficult event. Um, I was yelling for the finish line at some <laughs> point. Where's that finish line? And I finally saw it, and it was great to see it. Look, stuff out of your control, rain, this stuff happens. But I'll, I'll say, where did you come up with uh, – we're all um, wrapped in aluminum foil – I've never been greeted at a finish line with a with one of these thermal blankets. Was that something you had to come up with at the last second? No, no, that's something we actually planned for. Um, so the Beaver County Search and Rescue helped me out a lot with this event, and we, you know, we have safety meetings and kind of war game everything that could possibly go wrong, and things like this are one of those things. So we have as many of those blankets as we possibly can have, and we've utilized them in the past when we've seen rain at the finish line, and we're utilizing them again well i mean with a name like the crusher and the tusher people aren't here i assume expecting to have a nice easy day on the bike right i mean this is this is really what people sign up for and want and not not necessarily to be freezing at the end mm -hmm. but to to challenge themselves so i i, I don't know it, it's Hey, are, are you hearing a lot of pushback from from racers, or is this just mostly your concern? Oh, it's it's all my concern. I mean, I'm basically I see a lot of people coming across the line shivering, and and I I just instantly want to help them and want to make them have a great experience. And so I'm as a race promoter, or maybe as a person, I don't know. I always live in worst case scenario land. And so whenever I see somebody that looks like they're not comfortable, I'm I'm you know I want to make them comfortable so okay. but uh from what i from what i've been hearing everybody's you know saying the same thing you guys are and you're you've been really helpful in calming me down a little bit so <laughs> i want to thank you both for that too okay. uh the pace line we've been big supporters of these types of events we think this is the growth area of the sport um give us a status report though on the crusher how what size did it start where are you now where do you mm -hmm. see it going well, the very first year we did it in uh, 2011, we had 185 people show up, uh, which was a lot more than I anticipated, actually. Uh, since then, we've kind of, the next year I went up to 350. I set a cap at 350. We filled that. And I just wanted to grow the event slowly so that I didn't find myself um, in a bad spot. You know, I wanted to make sure that I didn't, if, if it was possible, have it grow faster than I was able to, uh, you know, handle it so we we hit the 600 mark um i believe that was in 2014 and that's kind of where i said you know this feels good i don't want it to get any bigger i like a small intimate 
feel. I've been to other really big events, and, and they're fun. They definitely have their place. But for me, I, I like the intimacy of a kind of a more smaller event. Plus, the town can only hold so many people. And I, I don't, I don't want to sell more slots than I can actually put roofs over people's heads. You know, I don't want to be that guy that sells 1,200 spots, but there's only 600 hotel rooms in the county. So that's kind of what I'm looking at, too. Right. Yeah. You don't want to uh, push half the half the racers over to Cedar City or something right. like that. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Yep. So have you th- have you thought of taking the crusher to or the idea of the crusher to other venues? Yes, I've definitely thought about that. And people ask me that all the time. And honestly, like. You guys can see how stressed I am. I remind myself of that when I start thinking about doing other events, and I think, yeah, I don't need that much stress in my life. This is enough. Um, I'm not saying it's never going to happen, but if it were to happen, it would probably have to be less of a one-man band thing that we've kind of got going on right now. I mean, we rely heavily on a lot of local volunteers, friends and family, and without those people, this wouldn't happen, and I think it would be very difficult to execute anywhere else under the current model that we have. That said, do you see this area of the sport as the spot that's going to grow the fastest? I mean, you had moots out here. Mm -hmm. It looks like bike companies are all in on this thing. Organizers Mm -hmm. seem to be popping up right and left on these things. Do you see this as a a good-sized growth opportunity? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think we're going to see more events like this, and I think we're going to see new events that nobody's thought of before, too. You know, and that's something that I'm always thinking about, too. I mean, what's, what's the next gravel? You know, who knows? Um, but yeah, I think I think uh, I wouldn't say that road racing is necessarily dying, but I think people are looking for new things and new new challenges, new adventures, being in cool places, and that's kind of what motivated motivated me to create the race was the fact that I came from you know a road racing background and racing for 25 years on the road, and I, I was tired of it, but I'm not tired of riding my bike. And I thought, well, what can I do to reinvigorate that passion in myself? And that was getting out and riding these kind of roads and, you know, checking out new places and not letting the style of bike I was on dictate that or, or even a particular mindset. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, totally. It's an adventure race, and we had an adventure today. <laughs> we certainly did. <laughs> yeah, we got the full adventure today. That's mm-hmm. for Wolfberg. Uh I think uh, Fatty would probably agree, despite the weather and, and some stuff out of your control, I mean, it was a great day anyhow. It'll go down as one of the days you, you know. I had the best day of my life. I got on the podium. Nice. See? <laughs> you put it down in your bike memory book and you go, hmm, check that off. That mm-hmm. was cool. Really had a good time. Yeah. So we want to thank you for being on the page. I thank line. you guys. Thanks a lot. Again, that was our man, Burke Swindlehurst, uh, race director for the Crusher and the Tusher. And uh, truly put, you know, he's one of the pioneers of this of this area, guys, like he said. Uh he was looking for a new place to ride his bike, um, and, and the road wasn't doing it for him anymore, so we're glad. And, you know, we asked him also, uh, Patrick and Fatty, about, you know, why has he so far not tried to make the crusher bigger or longer or higher or more epic, if you will? And he simply said he just wants to make it attainable. He still, I mean, it's a hard event. Look, attainable is a relative term, but he just wants to put something out there that a wide number of people would at least consider. Now, it's a hard event, and if you ride your beach cruiser up and down the bike path, don't start thinking you can jump in the crusher. But I I think by keeping 70 miles, yeah, 10,000 feet does sound like a lot, but 
six, seven hours is not, you know, out of this world. It gives a lot of people that chance to go, yeah, you know what? I'm going to put that down. I'm going to make that a goal. I'm going to get to the crusher and the tusher. I'm going to try to finish that thing. So that's why he's resisted any idea of making this thing longer or harder or more epic. Yeah. And, you know, you can really tell what I think is the reason that his race is succeeding while other races are really struggling right now. And that has to do with who he is, right? He cared deeply about the race mm-hmm. and the venue, and he cares deeply about the racers who are crossing the finish line. I mean, you could hear the stress in his voice and in a way the relief in his voice when we were saying, hey, this you know, this is what people signed up for. We're happy. This was a hard day, and that's what we wanted. Um, when, when you care that deeply, he was sweating the details. You know, he was ready for a 105 degree day. He was ready for a 40 degree day in the rain mm-hmm. with lightning. It, it, it makes a big difference to the quality of your experience. And I'm getting to like Southwestern Utah there, Fatty. Uh, Cedar City, uh, I, I enjoyed that. I did that race a couple years ago. And I tell you what, Beaver's mm-hmm. a small little town. There's not much there. Went to El Bambi Cafe one morning and had yeah. a nice breakfast with the locals. Um, but darn it, I, something about that area. I went, damn, this is maybe it was the fact that you could go from 95 or 100 degree heat and in a two hour climb be in 40 degree weather. I just thought that was cool. And the, and the elevation, oh, yeah. the, the tushers are just beautiful upstairs. It's just, just wonderful to be up there. They really are, and that's sort of a hallmark of that area. You can do kind of the same thing with uh, Cedar City and then climbing up to Brian Head, up and over into Penguin. That's what the rock, what the Rockwell Relay does, but on the road. Mm-hmm. Um, the, this hot desert heat up into the Aspens, it's what, uh, it's what that area of southern, uh, of southern Utah is really mm-hmm. like, and it's fantastic. Um, it's, I, I love going out there. Nice, uh, a nice place to call home, no yep. question. So you haven't asked me. You haven't asked me. Uh, I'm not. Tell me, tell me what I should be asking you. How'd you do? No. What was your time? Well, I know that. Would you do it again? Oh, that's a great question. Well, would you do it again? You know, I think right afterwards, I was like you are after a lot of hard events where you don't do so well, and I didn't do well. I was, I had, I struggled all day. I thought I was going to come around on that second climb. I just set my pace on the first climb. I went, no, no problem. I'm, I'm always a second half type of guy, but it, it never came around. I just struggled the whole day. And I think if you'd asked me right away, I'd have said, no, that's, that's it. That's enough. But the more I think about it, the more I think about, gee, what if I had this bike? What if I did it this way? What if I prepared? Mm-hmm. What if I made it my A event? Maybe I could, maybe I could turn it around. And then the, the affection or the infection of the race, <laughs> I feel like I've, you know, like Ledvo or like Rock Cobbler or like some of these other events, you kind of get that bug, right? And you go, ah, yeah. I, I got to go back there. Plus, I like Beaver. I mean, I like Beaver, and I like Southwestern Utah. So I'm like, it's got a good vibe. And that, now, as there's a few days between the finish line and and now, the more I think about it and mull it over in the head, the more I go, you know what? I think Tusher is going to have a spot on my calendar in the future. Oh, I like the sound of that. How about you, Patrick? Have we swayed you? I mean, has this half hour of enthusing over this race? Uh, is it, is it got you peaked? Oh, I've been peaked. I mean, I've been interested in this event since the first year it was announced. Uh, I mean, it's not like I've been going, Ooh, I'm not a coffee drinker. 
this is something that had, you know, immediate interest for me. And really, it's just been a matter of, you know, calendar and then, you know, trying to figure out a way to budget even more money for travel than I already have this year. Uh, those are the struggles. Um, but, you know, everything I've right. heard about it. Yeah, I've, I've wanted to go. And, you know, I really sincerely hope that I make it one day. Yeah. I hope you do too. It's not an expensive race, and it's not an expensive place to stay. I oh, don't it's think just there everything are. else. You know, it's flying <laughs> oh, sure. and all that. Yeah, it adds yeah. I I know what you're saying. Well, I think that's going to be the final word on the Crusher and the Tusher, at least for this episode. Who knows? We may have a little bit more reminiscing. It's hard not to. It's what we do. For right now, though, we're going to take a quick break, and then more storytelling. Ah, right here on the Faceline. This is mine, baby. There you go. How do you like me now? Very nice. Excellent job. Robbie Squire defends his title. We've been talking about Health IQ and how they are helping people to source better rates on life insurance. Recently, they updated their site with new insurers and the ability to serve more people. They've got special rates for cyclists, of course, and runners and triathletes, but also vegans and other health-conscious people now. We've mentioned they have quizzes, and these aren't just for fun. If you score elite on a quiz for a specific lifestyle, that can earn you a further discount on your life insurance. They've also replaced BMI with waist to hip ratio, which is a far better predictor of cardiovascular disease when it comes to athletes. Additionally, they replaced the LDL to HDL ratio with triglyceride to HDL ratio for people on low carb or paleo diets because that's a better predictor of cholesterol health. Amazingly, they will not take into account one incidence in a family history if you are otherwise healthy. It's like a get out of jail card. In other words, if one person in your family has had cancer or diabetes, they won't ding you for it. Finally, they can also get better rates for those with runner's heart or hypertension. Check them out at healthiq.com slash paceline. Segment two of the Paceline, the podcast on two wheels, Patrick, Hottie, and Fatty, and it's story time. Uh, specifically, Scott Fitzgerald, the author of B is for Bicycle. You recently talked with him, right, Patrick? Yeah, I met Scott and his wife Janine last year at Interbike, and I don't even know how I first heard about the book, but when I heard that somebody had written a new book for kids about bicycles, I was in. Okay, I, I didn't need any prompting. I didn't need a sales pitch or anything like that. And it has become a regular part of our uh, evening storytelling routine. And recently, I got an email from Scott giving me a heads up to a new Kickstarter that he has going uh, for a new book that they are hoping to publish this fall. 
and therefore have out in time for the holidays. Um, it's called Buddy Pegs Taking the Lead. And uh, they've got a new illustrator for this. But anyway, you know, I mean, I can read a Kickstarter campaign just like anybody else. But I like Scott and the limited amount of time I've had talking with him. I figured, let's get this guy on the phone and, and find out what's up with this. So uh, I interviewed him. Here he is, Scott Fitzgerald. Well, hey, Scott, it's great to speak with you again. It's been a little while since I last saw you. I believe that was Interbike, right? I think that's right. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, yeah. So uh, you've done really well, it seems like, with B is for Bicycle. Uh, is that a, a fair assessment? That is a fair assessment. We're really proud of that. We are an independent publisher. So in the world of books, and especially children's books, there's so much competition out there that we feel really lucky to have the bicycle industry to distribute that book through. So, you know, independent publishers oftentimes just have a hard time finding an audience, no matter how good their book is. And, uh, and you know, we primarily target bicycle shops as our customers, and that's worked out really well for us. Yeah, it's, it's a pretty genius move. I need to say that as someone, you know, who's also involved in publishing, what you've managed there is impressive because most bike shops are backing off on the amount of paper products that they carry this year, uh, th these days. You know, they're not carrying as many magazines anymore. They're not carrying, uh, in many instances, they're not carrying any books at all. So what you've done is impressive, not just because, you know, you've done this as an independent, but you've done it in, an, in a climate where just carrying books or other printed publications at all is really on the decline with retailers. Yeah, it's challenging. And, you know, we have a couple of messages that we deliver to bike shops. You know, the first message is, I, I was a retailer. We owned a bicycle shop for 14 years, and I did not like carrying books at all or any paper products. But, and that was primarily because there was no price protection. You know, if I bought, if I brought in books into my shop, most of the time, those books you could find online cheaper than what I was getting them at wholesale for. So it didn't make any sense for me to, to stock those products. And so we've been really adamant from the start with our project and our bigger brand, Buddy Pegs, is our, is our publishing brand, that we, we have a map policy in place. So yes, we do sell online, but, you, but not any cheaper than a retailer is going to sell the book for. And we also built in, and this was tricky, but we were able to build in uh, a margin structure that allows us to work through distribution channels and still give retailers more than a 50% margin on the book. So it's been really a huge part of our effort to say, look, we want to not only create great products that talk about the importance of bike shops, but we also want to build in pricing structures that allow bike shops to be successful. Nate, Nate, that's really tremendous. And I mean, you know, it must be a message that's resonating with retailers because I do see your book out there. Yeah, you know, it, it, it does resonate with with some. It's it's still a challenge, um, you know, because there is that underlying feeling that books aren't an appropriate product for a bicycle shop. But there's this other challenge, too, that uh, that we're spending a lot of time trying to create messaging around, which is that you don't have to be a family bike shop, meaning you don't have to have a whole bunch of kids' bikes and bells and, um, you know, accessories for children in your stop, in your shop already as products to carry a book like this because 
this is what we actually kind of found out through this journey, that a lot of shops, even if they're targeted towards a high-end road customer or a high-end customer in general, and oftentimes that's a male customer, right? Our, our industry is very focused on the male customer. Well, that customer oftentimes, if not the majority of times, does have kids in his life, whether it's you know his own kids or um, nieces or nephews. And it's been fascinating to watch some of these higher end shops who don't necessarily already carry products for families carry this book as a way to connect that customer to their shop. And actually, one of the shops that we work with came up with this brilliant idea. They said, yeah, we actually, every time we sell a high end bike, we and we we know the customer has kids in their life. We just give them a book. We say, hey, you know, we you know we know you have a kid at home. Take this home to him tonight. It's on us. Read him this at bedtime story. And it's huh. been just an amazing way to connect to build that connection between your core customer and your shop through children. Wow, that's absolutely tremendous. Uh, and and cheers to any retailer that's willing to think that way. My gosh. Okay, now. The reason I wanted to talk to you isn't about, okay, you've done all this cool stuff so far. You've got a Kickstarter going for a new whole new book. And so I want you to tell us about it. Yeah, glad to. It's pretty exciting. So when we started BS for Bicycles, we had in the back of our mind that we wanted to create this whole world, this whole character ecosystem around uh, bicycles and bike shops and animals because kids love animals, right? Kids love dogs and cats and um, so we wanted to find a way to connect the story of cycling to families in a way that kids are already kind of willing to accept. Like kids love characters and they love different um, character ecosystems. So our new book that's on Kickstarter right now is actually that it's a continuation from BS for Bicycles, but you might not know it just reading BS for Bicycles that there's this whole world behind those characters. So our, our company's name is Buddy Pegs, and Buddy Pegs is actually the name of a bike shop. And it's a Ooh. fictional bike shop in the fictional town of Spokesville, and it's run by dogs and cats. And it's the dogs and cats in BS for Bicycles. And those dogs and cats fall in love with bikes in BS for Bicycles, and they journey through the alphabet, and they learn all the great things about cycling. Well, now in our new book, we learn that those dogs, the two main characters, they had a problem. Their bike broke and they fell in love with biking and now their bike is broken and they can't get it fixed because there's no bike shop in their town of Spokesville. So these dogs go on a little bit of a soul searching journey and get some guidance from other uh, important characters in their world and they decide to go open a, a local independent bike shop called Buddy Pegs and that then becomes the backdrop for all the subsequent books that we're going to write and podcasts that we're doing. Huh. Very cool. Wow. Uh, well, this is certainly something I'm going to want to see and, uh, evolve and unfold uh, just for my kids. Why? What was it about the independent retailer that made you think, yeah, that's the setting that we want for uh, for this book? Well, it's you know, it's because we love local bike shops like I. But look, you know this and your audience knows this. Um, but not the rest of the country sometimes, not everyone. Bike shops are a really super important part of local communities. They are the hub oftentimes of a community. It's where people gather, it's where they get together. It's not just about buying parts or getting your bike fixed. We used to always say at my bike shop that we brought people together and it sounds kind of corny or a little hokey, but 
it would happen all the time. Somebody would be in the shop and then a friend would come in. They were both just picking up a tube or running a short errand and they would hang out for like an hour catching up with each other. Sure. To me, that symbolizes the importance of bike shops. Bike shops are a community gathering place and they're really important to communities. But uh, you know, as we know, statistically, they're, they're on the decline and bike shops are having a harder and harder time uh, you know, making it in the new economy. So we want to tell the story of the importance of bike shops in a different kind of way and do it through storytelling for kids. And of course we want parents to absorb these stories as well because oftentimes it's the parents who are reading the books or they're sitting with the child while the podcast is playing or they're on a road trip and the podcast is playing. So it's sort of like a subversive way to insert this message and reinforce it that bike shops are critical, bike shops are important and bike shops um, should be supported, you know? So let's think about how to tell that story. Well, can I just uh, volunteer that if that's a subversive message that I'd like to be a, a rebel to your cause? <laughs> yes, we need more rebels to that cause. You're <laughs> <on board. laughs> wow. Okay, so now back to the Kickstarter. Um, you've funded, I believe, more than 20,000 of your requirement? That's right. We're almost to 60% funded. Our campaign goal is 35,000. And for those of you that don't know Kickstarter, Kickstarter is not, it's not a donation platform. We're not just looking for handouts. We are pre-selling, we're, we're asking for pre-orders of product. And we have some other reward levels if you back at higher levels. Um, but really what it's all about is we are committed to building a publishing company in the modern era. Now, 10 years ago, you know, if I said, I'm gonna start my own publishing company, that would have been really hard to accomplish. But now with Kickstarter and crowdfunding and all the digital platforms that are out there, we can actually do this. We can build a publishing brand. And when I say we, I mean us, the bike industry together, like let's build this together. Mm -hmm. Let's build a media brand that goes into American families and delivers the message of cycling and let's do it together and let's do it without having to be shackled by the conventional publishing industry, which has a whole bunch of pitfalls to it. So that's why we went to Kickstarter because we want this to be a, a group effort and, and it allows us to have those commitments for pre-orders of books and then we can go out and we can continue to finish paying our illustrator, we can pay for the first print run of books, all of the design layout and everything that comes with, uh, with launching a book. Right, right. Uh, I mean, from a from a publishing nerd standpoint, I could continue down this road with you for hours to come. Um, but I don't think that's quite as interesting uh, to our audience. What I want to turn to is so uh, you you're roughly 60 percent funded. Um, how many days are there left in the campaign? I mean, because obviously we need to let people know if they find this interesting, they're going to need to act at some point. You bet. So as of today, we have eight days left. The campaign closes on July 21st and Kickstarter is an all or nothing campaign. So if we don't hit our $35,000 goal, we take nothing away from the campaign. So when people pledge and pre-order on that platform, their credit cards don't get charged until we actually hit our goal on the last day of the campaign. Yeah. Um, so that's, you know, yeah, we're in a stressful period of time right now. You know, we're working really hard on personal outreach and continuing to ask people to support us. And um, and that's, you know, next Friday, July 21st, that's the goal. And, you know, one of the, one of the places where I'm spending a lot of my effort right now is reaching out to brands 
in the industry and also out of the industry um, who are connected to what we're saying, this message of, look, let's get kids off the couch, let's get them outside, let's get them on bikes, and let's deliver this message of bikes being an important part of childhood. Because bikes are fun, but they're not just fun. Bikes deliver self-confidence, resilience, independence, a connection to community, a connection to planet. You know, bikes are an important part of lifelong success. That childhood of cycling is actually a really big part of being a happy, successful adult later on in life. So brands who believe in that message and want to support that message, we do have sponsorship opportunities available through this Kickstarter campaign where we have four spots available. We'll have logos in the book. We have um, sponsorship available on our podcasts. And, you know, what's kind of unique about that is, and this was a, this was a big decision for us, the logos that go in this book, those four logos, they're there for life, for right. every print run of the book. It's not the first print run. It's not the first edition. We really, we, we care deeply about brands who get behind us and support us. And so we want to give that lifelong support to them through this project. So yeah, that's a, that's a big effort right now to, to bring on brand partners like that. Very cool. Well, I certainly wish you lots of luck that way, but most of all, you know, hopefully we can help rally our audience to, uh, help put you over the top. You know, uh, I certainly want to see this, uh, funded. Uh, I'm going to be making my pledge. And, uh, you know, uh, I look forward to one evening being able to sit down and read this book to my kids. Yeah, that's excellent. Well, you'll be able to do that this fall because um, we, we timed this campaign so that when it closes, we will be able to deliver the books in time for the holidays. And that's really important to our retail partners. So we have that product available for, for holiday sales. And so thank you so much for your support. It's just amazing to have to have your, uh, your, you know, you putting your shoulder into it like this. It's really awesome. Well, it's worth it. You know, I love beers for bicycle. Uh, I'm always stoked when, you know, one of my boys grabs that and says this tonight. Uh, so it, you know, any book about bicycles, uh, I'm, I'm kind of partial to. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah. awesome. Excellent. Scott. Thanks so much for the time. Oh, Patrick. Thank you. Have a great day. Again, that was Scott Fitzgerald of Buddy Pegs Publishing. And uh, the Kickstarter uh, is uh, for a book called Buddy Pegs Taking the Lead. Um, I think it's really neat that this is meant to be, you know, yet another title in a whole ecosystem of children's books. It reminds me of growing up with the Richard Scarry books. So uh, I'm excited. Um, you know, I'm, I'm hoping other people will sign on for this because I certainly want to get this book. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, someone with that kind of enthusiasm and that kind of uh, interest in the uh, community, yeah, you got to root for them. No question about it. Well, it's amazing how all in on this concept they were uh, or they are because, you know, he mentioned having owned a bike shop for 14 years. They sold the bike shop so they could start this publishing company. I mean, uh, I don't want to say it was a bad idea or foolhardy or anything, but... You know, that was a big, big step. Um, you know, it's not the sort of thing you typically see people do, but they've made incredible inroads. You know, one of the things we didn't talk about is how uh, Quality Bicycle Products, the biggest distributor here in the U.S., is carrying the book. So if this funds, you know, it's going to be all over the place. But I really hope that people will sign on for the Kickstarter so that it actually comes into being. All right. And that's once again, how do you find it on the web? 
Uh, we will have a link in our show notes to their Kickstarter. But, you know, if you look up Buddy Pegs and Kickstarter, I don't think the Googles will give you too much trouble. All right. Fair enough. Let's shift on over to the news. And of course, it's all about the Tour de France. Uh, this time of year, what else is is it going to be? Right? <laughs> yeah. The, I, I, I I, I wonder if there's anything we have to say that uh, hasn't already been said, but let's let's go down and talk about the things that are mattering to us. Hottie, out of the out of the tour so far, what are what are your big takeaways? My big takeaways, um, mm-hmm. big moments. <laughs> the big mo- well, obviously Sagan being chucked out of the race. Um, yeah, that sucked. We had you know the the big day before the rest day. The big uh, mountain day before the rest day, which uh, took mm-hmm. them down a, a supposedly somewhat familiar descent in that they did it in the Dauphiné, yet we saw a series of crashes going down that thing. Um, I think those are the yeah. two big days. And, you know, um, I think we're going to talk about Fabio Aru, too. And I've, that's certainly been a, a discussion point as well. So, Yeah, yeah. A lot happened on that one day, didn't it? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Richie Port out of the race, Fabio Aru, uh, an attack that didn't go, but there's a lot of question about whether it should have gone. And then, of course, Uran's amazing win, yeah. uh, in spite of the fact that he also had a mechanical and nobody waited for him. <laughs> True that, yeah. Well, one of the things that was really interesting to me was, you know, in watching uh, the video repeatedly of Port's crash, you know, uh, you, you know, they come around that right-hand band, and all of a sudden you see him plowing into the dirt off the left side of the road, and then across the road, you know, into Dan Martin, into the wall, that huge spinning melee of people and machines. And I kept wondering, what on earth happened? And finally, you know, long after the stage was over, when they were interviewing one of the directors for BMC, he was able to say that Port had told him that his rear wheel had slipped on the wet asphalt. So that road had been resurfaced since the Dauphiné. Um, And, you know, when when they surface a road just for the tour, it is that dreamy pavement that we all yearn for. You know, it's just smooth and perfectly uh, surfaced, you know, uh, uh, you know, utterly consistent. And it's, you know, got great traction unless it's wet. And then the moment it's wet, it really becomes pretty dicey. And so his rear wheel slid. uh, He steered into it. That took him off the side of the road. And, you know, there was there was no getting around the fact that he and Dan Martin were going into that wall. Um, the crazy thing is, you know, and this has been a little less reported, Dan Martin went down not even a kilometer later. And what took a little while to come out from that was when they pulled his wheel out and put in a new wheel, uh, the new wheel had a, a narrower diameter than the, the, uh, his original wheel. And his brake pads had worn down some. The upshot being that he went when he went to hit the brakes, uh, you know, just one or two turns later, the pads didn't touch the rim. And so he plowed mm-hmm. into the wall. And that's why he ultimately never rejoined that lead group with Froome. Hmm. Yeah. 
that no one was waiting. And then Rigoberto Urán, the eventual winner, finishing the race and winning the race with essentially two gears. Because during that crash, his rear derailleur was booted. Uh, and I'm sure he had uh, electronic shifting and it was short circuited. Uh, he made an attempt to get a, you know some mechanical assistance um, on the road on the fly and to no avail. So he was stuck with a 5311 or a 3911. And he outsprinted everyone with a 5311 despite a very long and hard stage. So Uran, hats off. That was a, that was an amazing, amazing ride. Yeah. Oh, and, it truly was. You know, cheers to that mechanic who was able to, on the fly, reach down and pull the DI2 derailleur out. I mean, whoo, I've done a few things hanging out the window of a car, but I never got to the point where I was making rear derailleur adjustments. Um, and, you know, that that was dicey enough to try to do just, you know, with a screwdriver or, you know, reaching for a barrel adjuster, but to grab the whole of the mechanism and pull it out away from the wheel to shift into a higher cog. Oh my gosh. And I think he grabbed it at least two times, if not three. So, uh, boy, what a move. Um, yeah, not something I'd want to do. That's the only way I ever do uh, adjustments to my derailleur. I don't understand what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Now, the, the, the move that has everyone's panties wadded uh, was Fabio Aru's attack the moment Chris Froome's hand went up for mechanical assistance. Um, speaking of DI2 rear derailleurs, something about his rear derailleur wasn't working. And uh, so, yeah, he held his hand up for his team car Aru was behind him, you know, to say that he didn't see his hand is like saying that, you know, you, I, I don't know. I mean, what, what, what could you possibly compare that to? It was, he was right in front of him. Uh, you know, he had to ride around him to make the attack. Well, um, maybe that was a pretty lame, maybe, maybe he doesn't care. Maybe he, maybe he finds a whole honor system to be outdated and stupid and racing is racing and racing includes keeping your bike moving and keeping your okay, mechanical. Okay, fine, but then don't lie. Have some honor and say, mm. oh, but it's the tour. <laughs> what are we going to do? Yeah, what are you going to do? You know, don't lie. You know, just say, dude, I, I you know, I, well, I'm, I'm here to race. Let's get to the point then. Is it time to throw out some of these old uh, honor systems of of bike racing should we attack when somebody has an issue that's out of their control well i'm going to say you know there are a couple answers here one it's funny to me that greg lamond is weighing in and saying hey it's the tour you know these gentleman rules are 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 bs you know it's it's racing get on with it Mm -hmm. because he was a guy who every time claudio chiapucci made some crazy attack in the 1990 tour Lamond had something to say about it. So I don't want to say this is a revisionist history, but he he's not the same opinion holder as he once was. Uh, for my part, if I were good enough to be a pro and good enough as a pro to be selected to race the tour, and on top of that, yet another order of magnitude, good enough to be contesting something, I can tell you I would not be the guy attacking because you start down this slippery slope. What's going to happen when you pull over to the side of the road to pee? Somebody's going to attack you. 
Uh, what's going to happen when you get to the feed zone and need to grab that musette? Somebody's going to attack you. So while I can accept that there's going to be an evolution in thinking on this, I would not want to be the guy leading that charge. Mm -hmm. Baseball settles this by throwing at guys. That's how they settle this stuff. <laughs> and cycling certainly could figure out something. I don't mean, you know, pushing guys off their bikes, but there's going to come a time when a roux is going to be in the shoes going to be on the, on the other foot, if you will. Right. He's going to be having well, a problem. He's going to be wearing the leader's yeah. Jersey. He's going to want some respect. So eventually it could come back to bite him. So go ahead, attack, go. I say, yeah. let's get rid of these honor systems. Screw all this old fuddy duddy, uh, cycling old world stuff. Let's just attack when we want to attack. If a guy's, getting a flat tire, or if he's got a pee, attack, 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 attack. But know that you may get the brushback pitch one day. You may get plunked. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> well, you know, but there is a, a way this plays out. And Sky has already said, you know, he's not going to be given any sort of free reign to try to get into breakaways. He makes a move, he's yep. going to be chased down. And if everybody's playing that way, and all the teams are chasing down everybody, it's going to be even more boring racing than we're seeing currently because every move will get chased down instantly. It'll be like Cat 4 racing. Will. And God forbid it should look like a Cat 4 race. Aru would have to lose a lot of time to be given any leash, even if he wasn't a goofball by attacking the yellow jersey when the yellow jersey's in trouble. I mean, that would, you know, he has to be down five, ten minutes to for Sky to even consider letting, letting him go. So that's not going to happen considering the current gc standings uh despite what he did but yeah Agreed. i mean if he if, if he if you got it maybe a teammate though maybe they don't take it out on him and this is what baseball does baseball may not throw at the guy who was an idiot they may throw at another guy yeah they could if, if somebody else on astana decided to take off sky could say uh-uh uh, sorry guys you're not going anywhere we'll let somebody else go but not your team there's ways that to deal with happened it, in know. the past mm-hmm and I think that is going to lead us to the paceline picks. You ready for those guys? We are. All right. I'm going to start with me uh, this time because I'm going to pick something that Patrick, I know, hates. <laughs> I'm going to pick oh, Lance Armstrong's new podcast oh. called Stages. Wait, His I don't daily... hate it. I'm just not listening. Well, same thing. <laughs> it's... <laughs> The refusal to listen to Lance Armstrong's podcast on the Tour de France is preemptively hating it. I'm going to go ahead and say. Um, I, that's beside the point. The point is it's a good podcast, and it's well done, and it has insight from the guy who has a real mind for race tactics. So, um, And also, 10% of all the money that they are selling, uh, their We Do Gear is going to World Bicycle Relief, and I'm going to guess that that is going to be a fair amount of money um, based on the fact that that podcast, Stages Podcast, is number three right now in the new and noteworthy iTunes podcast list as well as the um, top three podcast in the sports category overall. It's ahead of the Bill Simmons podcast, and that is something. So my paceline pick... A good podcast by a guy who knows racing. Stages. And let me just say this, Fatty, too. I was way too analytical last show about 
you know, the motivation for Lance doing the podcast. I, I'll, I should tell folks, I'm listening to it too. In fact, driving home from the Crusher and the Tusher, my buddy Sean and I, we listen to like three or four episodes. Just mm-hmm. like I will listen to Barry Bonds talk about hitting, even though Bonds has skeletons, I will listen to Lance Armstrong talk about racing. And that's where I'd like to yeah. leave that. Yeah. Episode eight in particular is worth listening to. He has a really nice anecdote about Jan Ulrich that uh, is incredibly complimentary. Whatever you think about Lance Armstrong, it's an episode worth listening to. And he talks about cramps in a very informed mm-hmm. way, which was helpful to yep. me. So there you go. That's my paceline pick. Patrick, you want a rebuttal for your paceline pick? <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, so my paceline pick is uh, the unfortunate... 21st anniversary of the death of former GT CEO Richard Long. Um, this is a guy who touched an awful lot of people in the bike industry. Uh, he was an incredible leader. Those people I've dealt with who worked under him have a really informed sense of the industry and how to get things done and, uh, you know, just, just how to view product and your mission in terms of getting it out there. Um, I was for a period of time uh, involved in a conversation with the family about writing a biography of him. It did not come to pass, at least not with me as the author. But I did write uh, what was, you know, pitched as a potential first chapter for the book and posted that last year on RKP. And I'll be including a, uh, a link to that um, in our show notes. Uh, but, you know, he's somebody who was... Uh, a real force of nature, and I think it's fair to say the bike industry would be different were he still alive today. And so I just wanted to acknowledge uh, him and his passing. Very good pick. Hottie, you're up. Yeah, my paceline pick is a product that lands somewhere between want and need. You know, we all want a lot of stuff. Just think about it for a minute. What do you want? Okay. Hmm. Time's up. Fatty, what do you want? I want a new iPad. Okay. Perfectly <laughs> good. That? Patrick, what do you want? I wouldn't mind that, but what I'd really like is a 21-pound, 160-millimeter travel mountain bike that pedals like a hardtail. Hmm. like those. Oh. Now, is... I want your thing more than I want my <laughs> I thing. I said that. <laughs> Now, is what you want something you need? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yep, very much. I would say fatty. Not even remotely. No, you don't need a new iPad? No. Okay. No, I have a computer. I have a phone. The iPad is somewhere in between. It's just, it's strictly a laziness device as far as I'm concerned. Okay. I, I can get everything done that I that, that I need to do without it. Of course, need can mean want, depending on how you say it. For instance, you may be looking at a set of Zip 454 NSW wheels and you say, oh, I need those. When in fact... <laughs> You don't really need them because chances are you already have wheels. You just want them. See what I'm saying? When it comes to electronic shifting, I've always taken this exact attitude. I like it and all, and I'd like to have it, but I don't need it. So none of the bikes in my garage have electronic shifting. Just haven't found the need. But I'll have to say my want-need attitude shifted, no pun intended, recently, (laughs) 
more towards the need side after spending a weekend on the XTR DI2 stuff. I was test riding a bike for another publication. The ride was BMC's four-stroke 01, their top-of-the-line cross-country full-suspension race machine. Retails for over 12 grand. And it was kitted out with this. The magical XTR DI2 put me in shift heaven. It was set up two by with one shifter, the front derailleur controlled by Shimano's genius synchro shift. I have never shifted a bike so much in my life. You know that yeah. whole shift early, shift often mantra for mountain bikers? Yeah. I shifted early, late, in between, and I racked up the gear changes with reckless abandon. I shifted just <laughs> to show off. It was a blast. Oh, uh, but there's more. You know, a $12,000 bike just doesn't have electronic shifting. No, it also has, wait for it, electronically controlled suspension. So in addition to rapid-fire gear changes with a touch of a button, I was also able to open or lock out my suspension pieces. Yes, both front and rear. Bam. When the review ride was up, I sent that bike back as fast as I could. In fact, I sent it back in a rush. Having that kind of fun at my fingertips was turning my want into a need real fast. <laughs> Best to keep the needle and the spoon and the bike heroin at arm's length. But thanks to Shimano yeah. for being my pace line pick. Oh yeah, I I, I haven't had uh, I haven't had suspension uh, triggerable electronically. But two years ago, I did race Leadville with XTR Di2 uh, set up once, like you did, with just one shifter, and. It is so nice. Yeah, it really is. <laughs> it is so nice. Yep, and I had to send it back quick too. Uh, at the uh, otherwise, uh, I'd probably own it by now. Mm -hmm. It's just oh, I, I I couldn't afford it right then, and uh, so I had to, like you say, keep it at arm's length for a bit. But yep, blurs the line between want and need. No mm -hmm. question. Good pick. Well, I think that's going to wrap us up for this episode of the Pace Line. For Hottie and for Patrick, I'm Fatty. Find us on iTunes, find us everywhere, and listen to the pace line. We're going to be on the final quarter of our first 100 episodes next episode, guys. Yeah, it's something big. Thanks for listening. He's not a kid, he's a man, man.